There weren't many people of color behind the camera as there were in the front of the camera. The stigma is totally different, like a stripper. The stigma is totally different from the person who's on the pole versus the one who owns the keys to the building. I wanted to change the dynamics of ownership for myself because I was like, hey, this is an industry I really want to be in because it's so small, but then you can go and do so many different things without people having to say, are you qualified? That's what I like about the adult business. There is no qualification, only your guts and your confidence. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. Nina Joyner is an adult filmmaker, author, and the owner of Feelmore Adult Gallery in Oakland, California. Prior to opening Feelmore, Nina directed and produced porn that has screened in countless cities across the globe. Nina has won two feminist porn awards for the films Hella Brown, Real Sex in the City, and Tight Places, A Drop of Color. Nina's first book, Never Let the Odds Stop You, was published in 2015. In 2017, Nina was awarded the Small Business Owner Leader Award from the East Bay Stonewall Democratic Club. And in January 2018, Fillmore was honored by XBiz as the best retail boutique. Nine years of owning Fillmore Adult Gallery in downtown Oakland, Protest Central, has challenged Nina to become a community advocate and small business champion. In 2016, Nina ran a successful campaign to become a Democratic National Convention delegate and is currently a member of the DNC LGBT caucus. Nina has gained two mayoral appointments to City of Oakland boards. I had the pleasure of interviewing Nina at Fillmore Gallery, and it was a powerful and illuminating conversation. Nina, it's a real pleasure to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you about so many things. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Mm -hmm. So I first want to ask you a little bit about your upbringing and um, how it informed, if at all, your trajectory to get into this kind of work. Uh, I would say my upbringing uh, informed my work that I'm doing right now is that my grandmother actually owned um, retail businesses, uh, retail grocery stores. Where was the grocery store? Uh, the grocery store was in Las Vegas. So I'm originally from Las Vegas, Nevada. Mm -hmm. So I got that desert culture. You're from Santa Fe, right? I'm living there now. You're yeah. living there. I'm okay. a New Yorker at heart. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so yeah, the desert culture. Yes, absolutely. She had two grocery stores uh, as I was a kid growing up. Basically, it was for me just to be a part of the community and uh, just see the growth, see the growth in people, see the, you know, see what the value was. But mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to take that model and take it a step farther for where we are now for who I am and also how I the world has informed my decisions um how was sex talked about in your house when you were growing up we didn't talk about sex mm -hmm. yeah so I wouldn't say that we I come from a feminist household but we just come from just women doing things because they have to be done mm. uh so you know i think many black households are those that just go get up go to work and have to deal with you know some of the isms that come along with being brown and in certain communities and so you're not subscribing to being a feminist in that respect and teaching all of those things that many households that are educated, you know, primarily educated uh, two-parent household that they're doing. You're making sure that there's a roof, there's water, there's food, and, you know, 
and you're going to school. So that's about it. And even in those households, sex is very rarely talked about with any kind of honesty or or candor, I think. Well, I wouldn't say honesty because we didn't have it. So, you know, I wouldn't say candor because we didn't talk about it. There was no time. You know, the other things being black and being queer, the, the one thing that informs my life the most is being black. And so I think in my household, it was about what informed us the most. And because it was a hierarchical, you know, household, grandparents or parents, it was informed from their viewpoint from their from their legacy that they got from their grand their parents my grandparents and it was about what was most relevant for us and being most relevant was being black it, it had nothing to do with I'm not saying sex is not a part of you know is not something that you should teach someone but the core message of survival for us was around being black sure Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just saying that even in those households mm-hmm. where it's two parent oh. wealth, whatever, uh-huh. sex is still very rarely yeah, talked it, about it, with you candor. You just have to, you yeah, it's it's not to say just because this and that equals. Oh no, that. no, 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 yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, and that, you know. You get lucky sometimes. You mm-hmm. get lucky. You get to a community that's progressive and a community that's okay with making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that it's a mistake to talk about sex. I'm saying it's a risk and it could be a mistake. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just such an interest of this podcast mm-hmm. initially uh, as well, you know, like how sex sh- is talked about in all different kinds of people's homes uh-huh. and how it shapes their relationship to it as an adult. And, Absolutely. you know, so on that note, um, if it wasn't something that was spoken about in the home, where did your ideas about sexuality sort of start to develop to the point where you are now opening and running this sex shop? I would say my interest came about just moving here to the Bay Area. I mean, as a kid, honestly, I did call it. I think I was born around cable time that cable mm-hmm. became more accessible in households. Like my grandparents down the street had a big sat- satellite dish. So getting those channels, you're getting porn channels. So I was loving it. Okay. <laughs> I was loving it. So even if you couldn't see the, like my grandfather, you know, it would come on at a certain time. If you watched it at night and you didn't have access to it, they would like, this little line would go through and then go up and down. You're like, oh my God, let me see if I can go down and see more. <laughs> you know, like it's a peep show. But um, I think that was, uh, that informed my life. And also um, because in Vegas, there wasn't this, just being a part of the Las Vegas Strip, you know, the homes away from the Strip were the homes. There was community, there were schools, there were churches. But when you go on the Strip, it was just like this, you don't know what to get. You don't know what to expect. You can't put it in the box. You can't regulate it. It's already regulated. But you would get women who were sex workers, uh, 800 numbers. You would see all of these billboards. Mm-hmm. It was a I was accessing your face. I was accessing that as a kid and calling these numbers. And so the first ass whooping I got was from my grandfather because I ran up a phone bill for eight hundred dollars. So, you know, then eight hundred dollars is a lot of money for a phone bill for a kid. Like I'm calling these eight hundred numbers like crazy. Uh-huh. Like crazy, man. I, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop until that ass whooping. What and what what would happen when you called? Uh I would call, you know, you you listen to uh you listen to the women and um the voices were beautiful. You know what I mean? Like it was great to it was great to see and here, more so here. So it wasn't that I could see because of cable, but it was because I could hear. Mm-hmm. And it made this noise in my ear. And I'm like, wow, nobody's here. Let me call again. 
But it wasn't just that it was sex. It was just informing my queerness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was turning me on to what was inside of me already. Mm-hmm. It just gave me access to something that I never saw in my community. Had I saw kids who were queer or people who are lesbian and gay in my community much more, maybe I would talk to them much more. And so this was not just a perversion for a kid to do this. This was about reaching out to the only space that was available for me to find out who I was. Mm, Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, a lot of my conversations around pornography, especially either with men getting over addiction or Mm -hmm. women who feel that all porn is exploitative to them. Um, you know, sort of cast porn in a negative light and how it's impacted them. And of Mm -hmm. course, there's a lot of complications around that, which I'd love us to get into. But it's interesting to hear a sort of positive self-identity development that came about from your exposure. Yeah, porn is not always bad. It's about how you take ownership, even as an adult, for the decisions you made as a child. And I think for me, it was, I I did that, but I didn't have access to that. Um, What I did have access to were women coming in and out of prison because we had gang culture around us. So you would see women, even though we didn't have uh, queer, I say queer because that's today's terms, but then we didn't have lesbians or gay people in our neighborhood. If it was a gay man, he was a punk or he was a faggot, you know what I mean? And, and not even an offense to them because that was just the nomenclature for that time. But a woman coming out of prison was a dyke. And so it was like, do I want to be a dyke? <laughs> But that's all I have. So let me be that. So even as a child saying, maybe I should go to prison. Wow. Yeah, maybe Uh I should do that so I can be closer to the people that are like me. Ah. You know, so I had to, as an adult, I had to come to terms with that. What I was saying to myself as a child was not that I wanted to go to prison. It was that I wanted to be closer to what was familiar with me and learn from all of those different voices and experiences. And here it is coming to the Bay Area. One of the first books I read was um, from Angela Davis, who, you know, everybody knew about Black Panther, but not to that level in Las Vegas. But coming here, you get off, but you're going to find a Black Panther, a Black Panther attitude. And the book I read was when Angela Davis was in the L.A. County prison, in in the L.A. County um, jail system. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about relationships for women and and you would think of the county jail as a prison but it was basically because it was county jail overcrowding and population that this was the long stint for a lot of people and they were talking about the relationships that they had as women to protect and also to provide you know space for them and love Mm -hmm. when the men were absent Mm -hmm. but when you left and walked through those doors everything your world returned the same for many or maybe not Coming out of yeah, coming out of the coming Mm -hmm. out of the jail system. Yeah, Mm -hmm. some of them may go in there for protection reasons or just for this is what I'm going to assimilate for right now Mm -hmm. versus you know being on the outside and having more of a choice that what they really want to do. Right. Wow, that's really fascinating Mm -hmm. connection. Mm -hmm. You good over there? Yeah, I'm having a Yes, Yes, welcome. So I won't ask you your name, but please do just look around and let me know if you have any questions. I'm looking at stockings, so I take it downstairs. Yeah, keep and keep recording this. Mm -hmm. It works. (laughs) You good over there, sir? All right, all right, all right. Um, So, who were your earliest um, positive, or not that even? people, the women, the dykes coming out of prison weren't the positive, but other role models for you that showed um, possibilities for the identity that you 
Ellen. Hmm. Ellen. I mean, television. Here it is. You know, more television was coming into the home. Um, parents weren't working as hard. You know, you can say, okay, mom, go to work nine to five, or she stayed home from this time to this time. You could, you have access to your parents a little bit more, maybe not as much, but you still had access to them a little bit more. And so one of the things, and my mom was an entrepreneur as well, but one of the things that we watched all the time was Oprah. And so Oprah, it was Oprah and Ellen. Ellen, when she was on the Johnny Carson show, Vegas is really big on like Rat Pack kind of culture, right? Love Sammy Davis, love those guys. Johnny Carson, watched them all the time. I watched Dean Martin's telethon all the time just because they were cool people. But Johnny Carson had Ellen on, and when she talked to God, you know, that was a really moving part in my life, even though I was a young kid, because I love Johnny Carson. Mm. Um, that and also Oprah watching a parent come on there and talk about their child being gay. And then it was like I turned to my mom was like, hey, you know, what would you do if your kid was gay? And she just started going back to what she was doing. She never answered me. And so I knew my mom. So I never asked her again. It was like asking, can you go to a sleepover? She says nothing. You never <laughs> ask again. Um, but it turned out she had two gay kids. And later on, it was I asked her about, you know, why she never said anything at the moment. And she says, because you're in school, you should be focused on school. And I did not want you to get bullied to by accepting yourself too much. I did not not want you to be yourself, but I did not feed into the sexual stuff because I felt as a parent it was not appropriate mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. two gay kids as in you have a sibling but, yeah at, uh -huh. you know not at that time but later on my sister came out much later okay yeah. uh-huh just saying and so how did you you get into filmmaking uh I got into filmmaking one I watched a lot of porn but uh my uncle in in California here where we live he was actually doing film and television he went to um San Francisco State which is a big film and television school came back and did that for himself and when I first got here, I worked on the first project first week with him because I had to earn my boarding with him. Was a, a It was a, a profile in Courage with the KQED. They were doing, you know, local people. And so I got to see what the Bay Area is about. And, you know, learning about film is, you know, you're always playing the production assistant mm -hmm. the first time you go into um, film and television. Then you go from, you know, you learn that, you do it enough, you do well enough, you go to the next one, you go to the next one, you make more connections. And, you know, it came a point in time, I started to learn film editing and also sound work. And so I was able to take those skills and put them together with my idea of what I wanted to do. And when did you start to want to do pornography in particular on your own? Um, I wouldn't say that I wanted to do pornography just because I, I, I watched pornography a lot. And so I was like, hey, there's a there's a gap mm -hmm. once I understood gap analysis. Mm -hmm. So it was it was into adulthood. But it was, you know, just one day I was like, this is this is what I want to do. And I took a shot and sold my first project to a local um sex toy company and they bought it for several thousands of dollars and you know I, I love it you're talking about gap analysis so you started seeing porn and then you started what is the gap that you saw was it at what levels of production right so the the gap analysis that i saw in porn was that uh there weren't many people of color behind the camera as there were in the front of the camera and so i wanted to um help that narrative and as I started going to the conventions, the ABN conventions, which are in Las Vegas, my family's there. I've seen the billboards as I was a child. And so I was like, great, this is in my backyard. This is what I grew up on. Uh, what I started to see at those conventions, 
before I started shooting porn was that there were many brown people in front of the camera owning their company, but really owning their body, but still having to sell, do the work and then give their content to someone else who was not a person of color to uh, expedite getting their image out there or being a part of their porn program, if you will. And so that's what I saw. I saw there were a lot of brown people in front of the camera, but not behind the camera, really doing the lucrative work, uh, the work that would um, keep their keep many of their families together. I'm not saying porn doesn't tear down families, but you know, I, you you still have a lot of stigmas still associated with porn as well as the position, your position in porn. If you're behind the camera, the stigma is totally different than the stigma in front of the camera. Like uh, a stripper, the stigma is totally different from the person who's on the pole versus the one who owns the keys to the building. And so you wanna, I wanted to change the dynamics of ownership for myself because I was like, hey, this is an industry I really wanna be in because it's so small, but then you can go and do so many different things without people having to say, are you qualified, right? right? That's what I like about the adult business. Mm -hmm. There is no qualification, only your guts and your confidence. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and so what, talk me through your ownership over your product and mm -hmm. the distribution channels that you are putting right. it out into the world through. So, so my first film, as I said, um, I created the content, but I was already done with the content before I sold the content because mm -hmm. I didn't know the market. I had to, I wouldn't say I had to sell it. I was hoping to sell it, mm -hmm. but I was going to do whatever I was going to do regardless. And so when the company said, yeah, we'll, we'll buy it from you. I still had my image, my, my, my knowledge, my work, my name was still a part of it. There was no, you know, erasure. Yeah. Or... There was no erasure whatsoever. And I got paid well for mm -hmm. it. And it helped me to get to places around the world that I would have never been. So that one film created the distribution channel for me to actually the next film which you just saw, mm -hmm. sold to actually create the same product as I did the first time, but this time I can now just go to those sources where my first film was sold. Mm -hmm. First, you know, where those films were put into the film festivals and still get the same reception, regardless of who who else owned it, mm -hmm. because it was good work. Mm -hmm. Like, I do good work. Yeah, you I won really two yeah. feminist film, Absolutely. feminist porn awards. Feminist porn awards, but uh -huh. besides winning the award, it's good content mm -hmm. is really good content so I'm really happy about that um so that that's that's what happened you know I wanted to own my body and I don't mean just body of work but I wanted to own my choices and I wanted to make sure that you know as a black person that I'm not just selling my stuff off for someone else to have control of it I wanted to own it just like I'm owning my own store mm -hmm. yeah yeah fantastic mm -hmm. um and what are the names of those films and where can people uh, see them now you got tight places a drop of color and you also have hella brown a uh, real sex in the city and both of those are found on pink and white production which is also a crash pack company okay uh-huh wonderful yeah and, and they do good profit sharing so i long as people watch i get a check every month so. wonderful yeah. all right we'll definitely feature that link and links Absolutely. to your stores and anything on the right, webpage. thank you um so I'd love to hear about your process as a filmmaker mm -hmm. and particularly as a porn mm -hmm. maker. Okay. Um, how you work with your actors, how you find your actors, mm -hmm. how you create comfort on set. Mm -hmm. What are some other um, pitfalls of production and in, in 
that have given pornography its reputation as being like a sort of dangerous, corrupt industry? And how are you, I'm sure, rewriting the modes of production or Those are a lot of questions. (laughs) Give me one question at a time. Yeah, all right. So walk me through, first, just like how you find your performance, how you work with your actors and like the vibe you create on set. Okay, so how I found the uh, actors, I asked around to people who actually created porn, if they had people who they couldn't use at the time that they can introduce me to, and Craigslist. Craigslist really? was really big. Uh, and then once you have people in your circle know you're shooting porn, they tell everybody, like, oh, my God, they're shooting porn. And like, really? Um, I found Brooklyn, who's uh, the uh, main person in both of the titles. I went out to a bar the night before I was shooting, and this person was, you know, waitressing or whatever. I was like, hey, have you ever thought about doing porn? That one classic, you know, that you find that diamond in the rough and you ask them, you know, and they said no. And I was like, hey, I'm having this porn shoot. I'm having a intro shoot tomorrow, which is just a a screen test that people are talking, see what their chemistry is. And they were like, I'll be there. They showed up. We shot several scenes after that. We shot more scenes after that. And it's a wrap. Wow. So you had um, a screen test, meaning you brought a handful of performers to see how they sort of gelled together. Gelled together. What what we did was we just listened to their stories. So I don't say screen tests like uh, Hollywood, maybe a a reading, if you will, if you want to kind of equate it to a Hollywood. It's all clothes on. But we just wanted to get their personalities and learn how to um, accommodate them Mm -hmm. and in what we were doing Mm -hmm. because it wasn't uh do they fit for us it was like also do we fit for them Mm -hmm. and um as we found people uh we talked about you know what is safe sex you know getting tested what that's like and what kind of sex they were going to have but never scripting anything we just we went on and it was myself and another camera person we basically went on our style stylization of shooting and created content around them. Wow. Yeah. Because they're, they're feature films. They're each like yeah. one is 68 minutes uh-huh. and one is 80. Yeah. That's a long, and all of yeah. that is not pre-scripted, but sort no. of created yes. in the... In the moment. In the moment, we kind of, uh, you know, I kind of scripted out to a degree. But we also, like, one person was a chef in one of the films. And so what we did was we actually created a recipe where they were, you know, they they were creating a recipe cooking and we were taking the fire and the sizzle and putting all that sound together where a person could actually look at that and create, create their own recipe and what we were doing. But Mm. it's hot to find people who were cooking for you. How do you ease a first time actor into the intimacy of the work? First time participant, no actors, no one is lying. Acting, Mm -hmm. the word is lying. Thank you. They're not lying. Uh Um, We just talk, you know, and just make sure that people are uh, drug and drink free um, Mm -hmm. so that they can be heard. And uh, we just give them space, you know, so it's chill, really chill, very clean. We make sure the space is clean, sage it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Just making sure that it's a comfortable location. And if they're too leery we don't talk about hey you know you're gonna do this the one question I do ask is are you okay with this information being seen everywhere because we're gonna be good about marketing and getting it out there Mm -hmm. so don't believe that just because you're gonna do this it's it's gonna sit somewhere it's gonna get out there so we want to make sure that you're comfortable and also I never changed my name sometimes you have directors that change their names that's my legal name Mm -hmm. yeah I wanted to make sure that they knew 
that who was behind the camera was also in front with them as well and mm-hmm. having uh, just as much to lose as them. Totally. Mm-hmm. And and then pairing people because it was someone, participants who hadn't met before and right. are meeting on set for the first time. Uh-huh. That That's something that you just gauged in the pre-screening mm-hmm. and the chemistry process. Right. Or what you kind know, of agency does a participant have in choosing their co um, I wouldn't co-creator. say they have agency in that, but they do have agency in agency and saying no mm-hmm. this doesn't feel right so we give them time to sit together talk and they get to have their own private space we never get into it that's that's the interesting thing about the type of porn that i do is we shoot we just shoot what you give us mm. and we shoot around what you don't give us as well mm-hmm. um and how would you describe or talk about some of your films? Like, what is it? What is unique to a Nina Joyner film? Well, we do a two-camera shoot where we do split screens, and we also put social um, social content in the back. Like I said, the recipe information. We also talk to someone who is transitioning. What it looked like when they first had they had their first screen test. The first film was they had a chest. Uh, I'll say that breast or chest, mm-hmm. and then. As we were shooting, they had just, their scars were healing on time, but still they had some stretching. So we had to edit that out where, you know, we rewrote that into where they were having problems with their chest Mm -hmm. and we just, you know, let the scene go. Mm -hmm. So we're shooting for that person, not for us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So then talk to me a little more about creating, you started in tech before you Mm -hmm. were started this shop and then right. you transitioned you were selling sex toys out of a... well I was doing the sex toys out of the trunk of my car just you know during the time that I was working in tech mm-hmm. right and so at what moment were you like I'm ready to have this store and how, how did well, I've this... always said I always wanted to have the store okay. so you don't just get it one day I don't I didn't have it where it was a. Uh, my reality of tech ended and then I said I wanted to start the right. store. My idea had started some time ago and it, the tech gave me the opportunity to go to different places to see if this was exactly what I wanted to do. It was what I wanted to do and I had to find other ways to be a part of the adult business before having a store because having a store was much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So I just go out, come back, go out, come back. And then uh, I started shooting porn while in tech and got fired because someone saw me shooting or I had content on my computer, whatever. Long story short, uh, I was just like, all right, well, they fired me one day. And I was like, all right, well, I got to go because I got to go edit. And it, I stayed three days in a room, no sleep, no no food, and completed the project. Took it down to Los Angeles for, at that time, which was uh, Diana DeVoe, which was an uh, African-American porn performer and producer. Uh, for her to look over it. And I was like, I've never done this before. This is my first full length anything, right? How do you how do you get the right cuts for porn? It's very difficult. She was like, it looks good. She was like, oh, you could have did that. You could have did that. I was like, yeah, but I, didn't, I don't really like that. She was like, make your mistakes work for you. Then you'd have to do nothing over it. Now you make it your style. So that's what <laughs> I did. Brilliant. Yeah. That's a good piece of artistry advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't change the art. That art makes you, you. So if anyone stole my style, I'm like, that's me. I got that style from cops. As a kid, we were watching cops all the time. You know, bad boy, bad Mm -hmm. boy, what you going to do, right? Mm -hmm. Cops had split screen. So any action film or cop show had two screens. So I couldn't see what the cop was doing or the robber was doing. It was like you had to see them side by side. And Mm -hmm. so that's what we did. 
What were some of the unexpected hurdles that you had to overcome to open this shop? Uh, just money and also just planning and just making sure the neighborhood was there for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What was that conversation? In uh, terms the of conversation was just normal planning commission. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just they send you through the ropes. That's mm -hmm. all they do. So yeah. your slogan is uh, feel more. It's more than sex. It's more right? than just sex. it's more than just sex. So yes. tell us about that as uh, an ethos behind your store. Right. The mantra we have there is basically um, it's not just about sex toys. It's about community as well. Mm -hmm. It's about for me. I don't think I'd just be in this industry to sell sex toys, but it's also to create an experience for myself and to find out more about who I am and also support those who are sexual and also non-sexual, you know, asexual. I think a lot of sex shops are just people think just sex, but we wanted to bring in products that were good for people who are asexual as well. Like we have comic books, we have certain type of books, we have other things that they could buy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm that are still sex themed or what makes not necessarily mm -hmm. uh but they go yeah it's a culture shop mm -hmm. our shop is not just a sex shop but it's a culture sh culture shop where you can find anything in addition to sex toys and other things right and a community yeah. space you've been Absolutely. opening it so yeah. speak a little about you know other ways that you're building community with this storefront uh just building community by being out in the community um doing homeless feedings or unhoused or community feedings, if you will, from who, for whomever is out there, uh, just being a part of the community and not running from it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you, the store is sort of predicated on inclusivity. Mm -hmm. So what are the ways in which you've had to be proactive or just that you carry through that ethos? Uh, inclusivity is not pushing away anybody. Mm -hmm. You don't have to work that hard if you treat people with kindness. How do you train your staff? What are the kinds of uh, skills that one needs to have to work here to make the customers feel comfortable or that uh, they can ask questions? You don't have to have any skills. That, well, we want you to have some kind of understanding on privacy, you mm -hmm. know, privacy and making sure people's information stays theirs. But uh, one of the two core things that we talk about are like dead naming and uh, dealing with um, who could people that may present as trans. You could say that's anybody. If you want to tell me your name is Sarah, and I introduce myself and your ID when you purchase something different, knowing it doesn't matter if you're trans or not, if you want to be that that day, if that's how you identify or if whatever, you mm -hmm. know, if you tell me you're purple, I'm going to say you're purple. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but we want to make sure that people respect that. Our team respects that and that they're not dead naming or saying a different name than someone introduced themselves. So that's really important. But the other thing is we also uh, train for uh, shopping while brown, making sure that because we have a small space that we're very conscious of uh, how brown people may feel when they go into retail spaces around theft and things like that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And making sure that making and the third thing is kindness, making sure that everybody gets the same greeting no matter what they look like, because if you don't, you say hi to one vocally and someone else hears it and you don't say hi to them or give them the same attention it's like well what about me and now you didn't treat me with the same respect right. that you gave someone else you're thinking oh you're they're paying more money and i'm not no everybody it doesn't matter ten dollars five dollars gets the same treatment as somebody with three or four hundred dollars totally uh -huh. well and sex is such a vulnerable space that mm -hmm. even just having that sort of mm -hmm. um unequal treatment in a sex shop could trigger a whole lot of underlying mm -hmm. anxieties that people have right, right right yeah um where do you source your products or what sort of care goes into the kinds of products that you choose to feature choose here i choose it i choose everything and making sure that we don't have too many people of people on boxes that's for me is most important 
that you say that again that we don't have people on boxes i'm not white why do i want my all my products to show white people mm-hmm. you know we want to make sure that our our customer base is neutral to some of the issues in the adult business and i think the adult business for myself is getting better and we don't bring in things and we don't deal with companies that don't have the flexibility to give us the diversity that we need even if it doesn't give us the diversity that we also need the neutrality so that people are supported totally mm-hmm. you uh you also create sex toys yourself or design. well yeah we source and um, rebrand for sex toys yes okay yeah, yeah i read about just mm-hmm. an, uh, the idea of an affirmation mm-hmm. can you talk about that product a little yeah yeah so it's just a store wand um it's our store wand really powerful uh rechargeable but uh it's a sex toy but for me it's so much more it's um our dive into manufacturing and production you know to take the look at the box i did the box design myself Mm -hmm. and also got it printed got the sex toy got that together you know just doing all of that it's just amazing to see a product now that product lives with us and we're able to sell it Mm -hmm. when it's time yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well the the idea of an affirmation though i think links it this idea of pleasure and pleasure mm-hmm. activism. Adrian mm-hmm. Marie Brown's book is where I first read about your oh, store. Right on, right on. And so, um, yeah, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about pleasure and sexuality uh-huh. sort of as it relates to other movements in terms of, um, you know, step, stepping into a space of power or wholeness or however right. else you think about it. Yeah, I think pleasure for me, it's uh, economic activism. You know, you can create regardless of what it presents the layers are so much more involved than that you know sex is something else for so many people for me it could be trust it could be confidence it could be empowerment activism uh but for me in this space it's about economic activism and making sure that we create a space that everyone can access and also showing that ownership Uh, black ownership in this industry is possible Mm -hmm. and also that we don't have to be black owners in this industry or brown owners in this industry and not create a space that is going to be conducive for our communities you know you can you can say oh well sex sells and you know you you as a brown person want the support from your community but you can't because you don't have the right products for that community and so i think you can't i think this this industry is vast of enough for people to find what they need to support those communities like you got a trader joe's you got a whole foods but still food so you have to really do the work and find companies out there that are about creating space within their product mm-hmm. even a singular product but in bringing that product into a bigger mix, it just which is where we get the gallery terms. You know what I mean? And when you collect things and you put them together, you create a, a gallery feel. Mm, beautiful. Um, I you spoke about the church, mm-hmm. and did you grow up with the church? In the I, church? Did. Mm-hmm. I did. I did. Baptist. Uh-huh. Catholic school of Baptist. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think I read or heard that you were opening this space sometimes to a Bible study here. Yeah, my friend was doing a Bible study. So they've done it a couple times, like live feeds and stuff like that. But yeah, they moved they moved up to up north. So yeah. Yeah. So Strippers and Sages is the uh-huh. name of this podcast, okay. right? So looking at this connection yeah. between the unexpected connection, perhaps between the church right. and sexuality or the church and the sex store as a church. And uh-huh. I'd love for you to sort of riff on those ideas and how those two parts of your life maybe intermingle for you um i think people are queers are afraid of 
queer people in the sex industry may or may not be afraid of it's like it's like people in front of the lens are afraid of going to many i can't say all but many some many most some are maybe afraid to go to church you know because of the ridicule cure or because of you know reconciling whatever whatever the case it's a spectrum of things so i'm not speaking to one but for me it's about reconciling what I'm doing is okay because we've been taught that sex is not okay, even though it's okay. Mm-hmm. And selling sex is not okay, even though it's okay because you can pay taxes on it. And how do you, how do you reconcile with God that you're able to sell sex toys when God, when churches says that you're not even accepted because you're mm-hmm. queer or you're in sex. So, you have to create your own church for yourself and um, find the power that you want to um, bring into the world through that space. You know, I don't know the, the mantra I have is, you know, God says, amen, regardless of what you ask. And so be careful what you ask for and uh, bring it, bring it to a space that it doesn't have to be for me. It's not overly churchy, but how I deal with people is everybody who walks in here could be God. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if I can just deal with that, you know what I mean? Like, did I, did I, can I walk with my back to everybody and walk across the street to the, and stand at the bus stop at 12 o'clock at night, walk down the street at 12 o'clock at night. And this is how I commute home. Honestly, if I can do that, I feel good. Mm-hmm. And I'm not looking over my shoulder. Like, did I not treat that person with respect and kindness? It doesn't matter about Christianity. It doesn't matter about the church. It's, it matters about your teachings and how you are following a better way of life for yourself. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do with your job, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Can, what, what are your, what's your next film or where, where are you wanting to take your business and Uh, the work that you're doing? What are the horizons that you're now dreaming uh, Right now I'm not doing any film Mm -hmm. um, just because I'm focusing on the business, which Mm -hmm. is a little bit more lucrative because uh, content is changing. Uh, but if anybody wants to give me a contract to shoot some stuff, I definitely will take your money uh, and also your Not equipment. Um, but secondly, and most importantly, we're opening a space in Berkeley and downtown Berkeley and on Shattuck Avenue. Okay. Yeah. And you are looking to expand into the SF airport at one point? Well, we were looking at expanding. We'll mm-hmm. still expand to an airport one day. So you what never is it give about up. an airport? Just people. Mm-hmm. We're looking at millions of people exposure in one space. These mm-hmm. people can't leave. Right. Yeah. It's a good way to fill a layover for yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh-huh. Um, well, thank you. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to share with listeners either about your work or your ideology? No, just keep saging. <laughs> keep keep saging. stripping. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and All for right. having us here. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. If this episode turned you on, please subscribe, rate, and review us. It makes a huge difference. Then head to strippersandsages.com to learn more about our guests, sign up for our mailing list, access special resources, and become a Patreon supporter, which would be very sexy of you. Special thanks to Ben Euphrat for scoring and mixing these episodes, and to Lilia Tam and John Wolfstone for their production support. Stay sexy, folks.